Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Hey, everybody. This is Tom Varghese. Today, we're talking with one of the leading lights in our profession, Dr. Jennifer Romano. Dr. Romano is the Herbert Sloan Collegiate Professor of Cardiac Surgery at the University of Michigan Medical School, specializing in surgery for congenital and pediatric-acquired heart disease. Her practice encompasses all elements of pediatric cardiac surgery with a focus on neonatal surgery and hybrid interventions. She serves as the Program Director for the University of Michigan ACGME Congenital Heart Surgery Residency and Congenital Heart Surgery Fellowship, easily one of the top training centers in the world in the care of patients with congenital heart disease. Dr. Romano is active nationally as a director for the American Board of Thoracic Surgery, congenital deputy editor for Annals of Thoracic Surgery, and treasurer for the Congenital Heart Surgeon Society. At the time of this podcast recording, she's a current member of the Board of Directors for the Society of Thoracic Surgeons and was elected second vice president of STS at the recently concluded annual meeting. Through a stage ascension, she will thus be first vice president in 2023 and become president of SDS in 2024, one of a few congenital heart surgeons and the first female to be elected to serve in this honorary position. What makes her truly remarkable is that beyond her abilities as a surgeon and numerous professional accomplishments, beyond her abilities as a wife, mother of two, and pillar of the community, she has never forgotten her roots. She is genuinely one of the most humble, hardworking, and dedicated people I have ever met in my career. Join us as we reflect on her rare as a unicorn journey to becoming one of the elite cardiothoracic surgeons and leaders in the world. Dr. Jennifer Romano on today's Same Surgeon, Different Light. I have an incredible honor today to be joined by one of the leading lights in uh, the world of CT surgery, Dr. Uh, Jennifer Romano. Dr. Romano, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom, and thank you so much for the invitation. I always love having an opportunity to chat with you. <laughs> this will be great. Um, obviously, as you know, one of the biggest focus on Same Surgeon, Different Light is uh, we always start with a wonderful origin stories. And so let's start with you. Uh, tell us about your childhood. 
So uh, I am kind of a lifer Midwesterner. I was born in Iowa City, Iowa. My dad was uh, doing his graduate level training at that point in time. My parents both grew up in Iowa. And then shortly thereafter, we moved to Michigan where I've spent really the bulk of my life. Um, I grew up on the Western side of the state, Kalamazoo, Michigan, where my dad was a professor of mathematics. And I then ended up going to the University of Michigan for undergrad, but kind of what's classic about my story is, you know, one of my earliest memories of what do you want to be when you grow up, you know, when you're asked as a kindergartner and everyone wants to be a princess or a firefighter. I wanted to be a graduate student. <laughs> <laughs> that's unusual. Because <laughs> that's what I've been exposed to through my dad. And I was like, oh, I want to be a graduate student because I want to be a professor someday. What an odd thing to think of wanting to do when you're five. Was that because your dad uh, you know, took you to classes and you were immersed in that academic environment from an early age? I remember this was back when, you know, he grade exams and he had like the little punch cards you take back to the computer that was the size of an entire room and feed the punch cards in to like file people's exam grades. And also at that time, my mom went back to school. So she had wow. dropped out of college when she had kids. And then she went back and finished her bachelor's degree and got her master's. So when I was at that age, I would go and sit in lecture halls with my mom with a little book or a coloring book while you know, they couldn't afford childcare. And so I would just tag along. And so, yeah, I guess it was just such a part of my life. You know, I remember going to visit my dad's office on campus. And so it's just but, what I grew up with. That is fascinating. And you're the youngest of three, is that correct? Correct. I have two older sisters. And are your older sisters also in the medical profession or are you a little bit of an outlier in your family? Well, I was the first one to dip my toe into the medical profession. Nobody else really on my mother or father's side um, when I decided to go to medical school. But actually, originally, I was planning on going to vet school, but that's another story. Um, we, I, we have time if you want to go down that route. <laughs> Not a problem. We'll get there. So, uh, but yeah, so I... Um, decided to go to medical school. And at the time, my sister was in Chicago, my next older sister. Um, and she was initially in school to become, a, she initially did graphic design and then wanted to be a teacher. And ultimately she landed on nursing and she's actually a home hospice nurse. So there are two people in the family. The oldest sister is a lawyer, um, but there are two of us that ended up in the medical profession. So in this family of high achievers, how did you carve out the unique path? I mean, you did, you briefly mentioned that you were thinking about vet school, but you ultimately landed on uh, the medical profession. How did that transition occur? Well, I always loved animals growing up. I loved horses. I loved dogs. My mom grew up on a farm, so I'd spend summers on the family farm in Iowa. Nothing I liked better than standing on the side of a fence post, like calling the horses over and just talking to them. So loved animals. So I always thought, that was a great marriage between my love of science and animals that I'd go to vet school. And so all through college, that was my plan. And really, I ended up working in Bob Bartlett's laboratory to get large animal experience. Um, and I was volunteering in a vet's clinic. And, you know, I guess everybody assumed I was going to go to medical school because that's what everybody else did that went to Bob Bartlett's clinic. Uh, I mean, Bob Bartlett's lab. And, uh, you know, it came time to get a letter of recommendation. I took the GREs, everything. And as Dr. Bartlett, can I have a letter of recommendation for vet school? He's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> You're too smart to go to vet school. You need to go to medical school. I was like, 
uh, I don't think I really want to do that. And of course, what's even more comical is at the time when I finally wrapped my mind around like, okay, well, I'll consider medical school and I'll take the MCATs. And I was like, you know, it's just such a long path to do medical school and then another three years of residency. Because at the time I was thinking, well, if I'm going to go to medical school, I'll probably go into pediatrics. I really like the pediatric space from my ECMO experience. Well, you know, flash forward a decade of <laughs> residency. <laughs> so I kind of tended to usually um, underestimate what I was going to be doing. So initially going to med school, thinking three years of residency and doing a decade. Um, when I decided to become a surgeon, uh, I was, uh, that was another thing where I was like, you know, I really don't want to push that glass ceiling. I, you know, I'm not really sure I want to be a surgeon. Um, there aren't a lot of women in that space. And then flash forward to being one of the few female congenital heart surgeons. <laughs> So it's, it's been a journey. <laughs> That's amazing. And so was it any one, well, like Nirvana, like, you know, experience that made the decision or was it a series of subtle influences that kind of guided you to the career that you ultimately embarked on? Yeah, no, it was really just, there was some pivotal and a lot of path changes um, so I think the biggest thing for me is I just have been so blessed to have amazing mentors that have been in my life at key moments to help guide me in the next direction to take. And I talk about this all the time to students that I mentor in terms of listen to those who have more experience or who can see you in a different light or see where you're really shining and excelling. And so, you know, it was Bob Bartlett suggesting I go to medical school. I'd never even given it a thought. At last minute, I take the MCATs, I apply to only three medical schools and I get into Harvard Med School and have like the most amazing experience ever. Um, and then when I was in medical school, you know, thinking I was gonna go, be on this pediatric pathway and based on my ECMO experience and did every single pediatric rotation under the sun. And one of them was pediatric cardiology. And I just remember one of the patients I was following went to the cath lab to have something done. I remember listening to their heart in the morning and they came back from the cath lab and their murmur had changed. Wow. And I thought that was so fascinating. I said, and I just loved the whole fluid dynamics. It just made sense to me. So that was my aha moment that I was going to be a pediatric cardiac interventionalist. <laughs> this is incredible. So I was fortunate enough to be offered a fast track position at Boston Children's to do combined pediatrics, cardiology, and, cardiac, and, and pediatric interventionalists in a shortened time frame. I was like, perfect, life planned, done. And then I did my surgical rotations and I get called back from the uh, head of the core surgical rotation at the Brigham. It says, we give high honors to one student a year and you're gonna be getting, you're the one getting high honors. We'd like to know where you plan on doing your surgical training. I'm like, oh, that's very nice. I'm gonna be a pediatrician. <laughs> And so he's like, oh, well, why don't you just, you know, give it another thought. So that encouraged me. So I did a couple more rotations in surgical fields like peds ENT, peds urology, peds surgery, different things. And because I really, I, I thought becoming a pediatric cardiac surgeon was kind of, kind of like being an astronaut. So I kind of gave up on pediatric cardiology when I decided to be a surgeon. So I actually went, I double applied in surgery and um, pediatrics. And I went on my interviews and that was when I realized that I really was destined to be a surgeon. I was sitting in these conference rooms with all these other people. And, and it was like kind of one of those Sesame street moments of which one doesn't belong. 
So when I was doing my pediatrics interviews and everybody's asking about well baby care and well baby visits. And my question is like, so how many procedures do we get to do in the ICU? I realized that I was probably not in the right fit. When I went on my surgical interviews, I looked around the room and I was like, oh, these are my peeps. Like I just kind of fit in. It was the personality type. So I decided to do surgery. And at that point I was like, oh, I'll be a pediatric surgeon. Perfect decision made yet again. And I went to Michigan and my very first rotation was pediatric surgery and I hated it. <laughs> so I was back to the drawing board. And so during the next couple of years, dabbled in lots of different things. And I was gonna do vascular surgery because uh, I liked sewing, I liked constructing things. And I was all set up with a research lab and I had a American College of Surgeons research grant and my lab mentor changed institutions. So all of a sudden there I was at the, nearing the end of my third year of residency, getting ready to go into the lab. And I suddenly had no lab and I had to, had like kind of this like crisis of life epiphany and, you know, went in to talk to one of the general surgery faculty to kind of talk about like, you know, what should I do now? What type of lab should I go into? Do you have any connections? And it was the first time somebody asked me, said, what, if you could do anything in the world, what would you really want to do? So I was like, do I want to be an endocrine surgeon, a vascular surgeon, you know, all these opportunities ahead of me. And to have somebody ask me that question, I just paused and like, geez, well, if I could be anything, I'd be a congenital heart surgeon, but that's not possible. And she looked at me, she's like, why? I'm like, well, you know, there are so few of them in the country. That's like a, a whole nother league. It's like becoming an astronaut. And she's like, if anybody can be a congenital heart surgeon, it's you. And she's, and then was followed up like, as it turns out, I dated a guy in medical school who now has a lab, a pediatric cardiology lab here at Michigan. Let me get you in contact with him. <laughs> And so, you know, I found myself in uh, Mark Russell's lab and for the next two years and all of a sudden I was like, oh, it was this complete full circle of, I can potentially get to do what I really always wanted to do and take care of like pediatric cardiac problems. It's this, you know, I'd given that up five years before when I decided to be going to surgery. So it was this really unique time and in the lab, we ended up coming up with an animal model and Ralph Mosk at the time was at Michigan. And so I gone and asked him if he would help me in the lab with this coarctation model to create diastolic dysfunction. He's like, sure, sure. So he's like, come over to my office and we'll talk about it. So I, you know, bop over to his office and I'm talking to him. He's asking me all sorts of questions and I'm super excited now about what we're talking, what I'm going to do. And, you know, reading cardiac surgery textbooks on the beach in the summer, it was crazy. And he's like, Hey, I have somebody for you to meet. I'm like, okay. So he stands up and I follow him out of his office and he walks me into Ed Bovey's office. And he's like, hey, Ed, I want you to meet your replacement. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. And, you know, there it was, you know, like a third year general surgery resident. I was like mortified. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just said that. And, uh, but, you know, then from that day forward, Ed was my mentor. I, you know, owe my whole career to that guy. He trained me. He gave me my first job. He continues to be a cherished mentor. So certainly I'm the example of, you know, the path does not need to be straight. Uh, and I think that's one of the biggest things I tell um, medical students, undergrad, the path does not need to be straight. 
find what fits. If you're doing something and it's either really hard to do or you look around and the people around you don't seem like your personality, you're probably in the wrong spot. Like find another spot. People always ask me like, wasn't it hard to be a congenital heart surgeon? I'm like, it really was the path of least resistance. You kind of simplified some of the hard work and the preparation you did to, to capitalize on these opportunities. Um, you know, there's a quote that I, I really like uh, from Dr. Julie Freisog, who you and I know very, very well, who she says, bloom where you're planted. And I, I want to dive a little bit into taking advantage of the opportunities that are offered to you. There's no question you are one of the hardest working, brilliant individuals I've ever personally known in my life. That work ethic, even in times of uncertainty, can you reflect a little bit about how you do that? Is it, are you so super organized in your day-to-day life? Is it deep work? How do you go about preparing yourself to capitalize on these opportunities? You know, it's an interesting question because I'm spending a lot of time right now in like introspection and trying to, you know, advance as a leader and doing executive training and personal work and all sorts of different things. And, you know, I have to say, like, when I kind of delve into the whole, I, I, I don't really think about it. This is just like who I am. It's, and again, it's to the path of least resistance concept. I mean, it's, I just, I guess I'm fortunate. I'm doing what I love and I just do it. It's, I, there isn't really a, probably would be beneficial if I had a more thought out process of how to do it. <laughs> I, might be, I might be better off, but um, no, I think it's just a matter of, I, I think I found a, a space and a career and a community where it was just a fit. I guess that's a great, you know, reflection on uh, Sean Grondon's recent presidential address. I, I found a fit. I found a fit in terms of where I work in my career with my spouse, with my kids. I just, I, I found a fit. Well, I do want to d- dive into or transition to that aspect. So you're in this elite, very challenging field to do as a pediatric CT surgeon. We know that the technical skills and the thought process and the, uh, the stakes are probably the highest uh, amongst I mean, no offense to the other medical professions, amongst all the medical professions. And at the same time, you've also balanced that with the academic research uh, and uh, some of the um, cooperative trials and uh, the health services aspects that you've done and a personal life where, you know, you're married, you're, you're an amazing mom. Talk, talk to us about how all of your life evolved to where you are right now. Well, I certainly wouldn't say that I have it perfected yet. That is for sure, because there are times that I feel like pick the pillar that's not getting the attention that it needs. And it's something that I continue to work on. Um, Again, I've just been really fortunate to have tremendous opportunities put before me that I've been able to take advantage of. Um, But one of the things is you can't, I personally don't think you can have it all, but you can have what you want. And that's a very different concept of, you know what? I'm not a basic science person. I, I did bench research. It didn't light a fire in me. It's not where my skill set lies. I, I enjoy collaborative research. It kind of goes along with, I enjoy being part of a team. I like being part of the team in the OR. I like being part of a research team. That's what interests me. So, you know, when you look at the type of research I do, I, you know, do collaborative trials or my work with the CCRC that's with the upcoming compass trial. 
Um, you know, the same thing where I enjoy working in groups. I enjoy being part of the American Board of Thoracic Surgeons and being part of a group of really, you know, tremendous thinkers. I love being part of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons and being part of the board and working with tremendous people. So it's, I've had just great opportunities and found where my niche is. I do well in groups, in groups. And that's kind of, it's just this fit. And in terms of my family, you know, I, I you know, was late to find my family. And so I'm like thrilled beyond belief to have them. Um, you know, as most people know, we're a two cardiac surgeon family, which is a bit nutty. And, uh, <laughs> but there's a tremendous amount of understanding with each other. We understand when somebody comes home has had a really bad day, what that really truly means. My poor kids are warped because they have two cardiac surgeons as parents. <laughs> I, I relay a story that there was a time that I was driving with the kids in the car. And I think Max, my oldest was like three. And, you know, Matthew calls on the phone on the Bluetooth comes through and telling me like, I'm sorry, I need to take my patient back from earlier today. I'm not going to be home for dinner, trying to figure out when he's going to be able to come home. And he's like, well, we're heading to the cath lab right now. I'll know more soon. I'm like, okay, well, just keep me posted and hang up the phone. And from the backseat of the car, my son says, so is it twisted or something? And I'm like, yeah, that's, <laughs> it probably is. The graph probably is twisted. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> very insightful <laughs> yeah so that's i you know the dinner table talk is a little off at our house but <laughs> <laughs> and uh what what i've joined uh for the listeners full disclosure uh you know i i also trained at the university of michigan so i've known dr romano for many many years and uh she's married to uh my classmate uh, matt romano and so i've had the pl pleasure of meeting both your kids and uh, you brought them to academic conferences uh, from time to time. Uh, tell us about how that, I mean, I'm sure that your, your kids are both fascinated and then probably scratching their heads, observing this strange tribe of people around them, correct? Yeah, no, when they were little, um, you know, we only have a part-time nanny. And when I traveled, they traveled with me and my mom would come and stay with them in the hotel room. Or, you know, if Matthew and I were traveling together, we would, um, you know, pass them off, like push the double stroller <laughs> at each other <laughs> on the sidewalk, <laughs> crossing to the convention center and trying, we're trying to get to meetings. Um, but I think it was, it's been great for them to kind of see what we do. And as part of going to so many of those meetings, my kids have been to more zoos, children museums, science museums, aquariums than I ever went to in my entire childhood. Um, but, you know, there are times that schedules get Missed up, mixed up, and you know, we cross messages, and all of a sudden, shoot, Matthew and I are both at a national meeting with a commitment, and there are also two children that, and the commitments are at the exact same time. So, the first time this happened, we were in Seattle, and um, I think Max Allegro was a baby, she was maybe you know, five, six months old, and Max was two and a half, and we realized that we had a meeting at the exact same time, and so I had a meeting with the American Board of Thoracic Surgery congenital group. So I was like, all right, well, I'll take the kids with me. And, you know, I showed up at first, I was like, I am so sorry, but I, I have no solution. And like, oh, no problem. It was a dinner meeting. They, um, at the time, uh, Sarah Dunlop was part of the board. It loved that woman. And she's like, no problem. She made some plates with mac and cheese and with 
dinner rolls and we put them underneath a conference room table. It was like a floor with a big table with a tablecloth. We threw some toys under there. And my kids to the stage, I'd be like, remember that meeting where we sat under the table and ate mac and cheese? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And, but I think what it, it normalized, like, you know what? It's okay. It's okay to be a parent. It's okay for your family to be visible. Um, you know, I was one of the ones that really pushed for the lactation rooms and at the STS meeting, it was one of my first speaking engagements after I had my son, he was three months old. I was asked to give a talk on, you know, building a successful academic career. And I remember going with my son and my mom and I was nursing at the time and, you know, walk out of this lecture and I need to feed my son. And there was no place. I remember sitting in the handicapped stall in the bathroom. I'm like, there has to be a better way. There has to be a better way. There has to be a better way. And you know what was amazing? Just because nobody had brought it up. But as soon as it was brought up at one of, initially it came up in um, the DEI uh, committee and people were like, oh, that totally makes sense. Absolutely. And then the women in thoracic surgery ran with it. And I mean, it's just, when I was at the meeting in New Orleans and I walked past the room for the first time, I literally cried. I took a picture of the room and I'm like, this is so amazing that just simply speaking up and saying, you know what, we really should have something like this. And it happened. It, it, that is such a uh, incredible story. Uh, at, but I love the way that you framed it, that there are probably issues in our world that maybe nobody brought it up is the reason why change hasn't happened. Uh, and being open to uh, ha having those hard or challenging conversations is a good thing to do for our profession, correct? Yeah, no, one of my, the things that I talk about a lot now, much to my husband's chagrin at times, is you know fertility and family planning for our trainees. I get invited to speak on that so often. And I remember the first time we did a fertility lecture for our trainees at Michigan. And I was like, oh, we'll see how this goes over. And you know, all the senior faculty, <laughs> it was incredible. Like Mark Orner had like a whole list of questions and it was like, it was so great. And it was like, all of a sudden, like the number of people who came up, like that was one of the best and most meaningful lectures. And it came from both our male and female trainees. As a result of that first lecture, I think three babies resulted from people who were having troubles and had, didn't even know who to talk to or who to ask. And that was both male and female trainees. And so it's one of those things you think of like, oh, well, nobody's going to want to hear about this, or this is just for the women in the room, or, yeah. you know, then when I spoke about it nationally, recently I did it for a visiting professorship in Colorado, and having some of the male faculty come up and say, you know what, like, I start, my wife and I struggled with that when I was in residency training, and it was so hard because we couldn't talk about it. And it's so great that you just normalize it, and it just is out there. The overcoming stigmas or changing paradigms um, in a high stakes world such as CT surgery uh, is something that you've done very successfully for a long period of time. I wanted to read a quote from an article that uh, you were interviewed for at, at the University of Michigan, uh, alluding to what you just mentioned. Um, you said that I am empowering the next generation by being a role model as a voice for change. I'm often invited to speak at national meetings regarding balancing family life and career and family planning for trainees. 
I think by creating an open forum where these important topics can be discussed empowers the next generation to speak up for equity and a tolerant workplace. How difficult is it to continue to be the one that shatters that glass ceiling, but then also making sure that those broken glass pieces aren't so sharp that they can be stepping stones for this next generation coming up? Yeah, you know, it's funny when you allude back to the shattering the glass ceiling, as I mentioned earlier in this talk, the last thing I ever wanted to do was even touch the glass ceiling, let alone break it. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just, again, it's just, unfortunately, I am that person that uh, I can't keep my mouth shut. If I think about something or I feel something, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. Um, I just, I don't hold back. So if there's something that I feel could be different or better. I, I speak up for better or for worse. Uh, again, it's probably gets me in trouble just as much as it's successful. Um, but I think it's just, I guess I haven't been afraid to speak my mind. And some of that has probably been because I've been in a really great environment at Michigan in terms of being incredibly supported and feeling safe to make those statements. But I have to say like throughout all of the different opportunities I've had within this profession, every space I have felt safe. It goes to, you know, the American Board of Thoracic Surgeons. When I put on the docket at our fall meeting last year, like we need to talk about our leave of absence policy. We don't even have one. We don't even have and one, yeah. Presented, you know, a tremendous policy, which totally changed the ability for leave of absence for, you know, parental, medical reasons, family medical leave. And it was one of those things like literally people were applauding on the Zoom and like, we can't believe it's taken us this long. We never even thought of doing this. And it was warmly received. So again, getting to your point of sometimes it's like, if it just takes like, it's so simple. Just speak up about a simple idea. And I think so many people are really open to that concept once it's brought forward. And so I've just, I guess I've been fortunate that when I have brought forward novel ideas or pushing that glass ceiling or breaking that glass ceiling that I've always received a really great reception that has made it easier for me to continue to do it. So at, at the time of this recording, uh, we just uh, learned that you, you were elected as second vice president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, which is the, uh, as all the listeners know, the largest uh, international community of cardiothoracic surgeons um, that we have. And along with that being elected second vice president, you are in line as part of the succession plan to be the president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons in 2024. And you will be the first living woman leader who's been elected to the SDS. Talk about how you learned about being appointed as second vice president and the emotions or what you went through you as you, as you learned about this uh, incredible honor? Uh, well, I'm still trying to catch my breath. Uh, there's a part of me that's incredibly overwhelmed. Um, a part of me that's tremendously honored that people would trust me to lead this August organization, um, that people believe in me and, um, I'm incredibly touched. Uh, so um, I received a call from Joe Bavaria um, 
letting me know of the nomination. And basically my husband and I are sitting in the basement watching Teddy Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, you know, nine o'clock on a Friday night or whatever. And he had gone upstairs to get us a glass of wine. And my phone rang and it's Joe. And, you know, immediately I see Joe Bavaria across my phone and answered immediately. Hey, Joe, what's up? And he told me, and it was, just, it was like one of those things in your mind, you're like, excuse me, what did you just say? Like, I'm sorry, what did, can you explain that again? <laughs> and um, I, but I didn't, I didn't accept right away. I, I, I said, you know, Joe, I'm, I, I'm really touched and honored and, um, but I'm going to need some time. I need to think about this. I need to make sure that I have the skills that you really need to do for me to do this job. I need to make sure that I have the bandwidth to do this job. I need to make sure that I have the support of my family and that this isn't going to break my family. Uh, he's like, oh yeah, sure, sure. Take the time you need. Of which like the next day he's like, so have you decided? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> <It's some time. laughs> and um, I think it started making him really anxious. And so Matthew comes back downstairs and, you know, I'm completely speechless. And he's like, what, what's going on? I'm like, I just got a call from Joe Bavaria. He's like, oh, yeah, what Joe want? And I told him, and then like my husband was also speechless. And so, you know, but it was this moment of, it took me about a week. And it was interesting. I even, you know, I talked to um, Elaine Weiss. Uh, I talked to some past presidents. And, you know, it was driving Joe crazy because I guess he was, when I talked to Elaine, she's like, yeah, Joe keeps asking, like, what's taking her so long? What's taking her so long? <laughs> and, she had to explain to him, she's like, this is how women do things. They're going to think about it. It's not just a knee jerk of like, oh, yay, yay, great, thanks. I'm going to do it. She's like, no, she wants to make sure that she's got the skill set, that she's going to be able to commit to this, that she's, you know, that this fits for her and her family and her career. It'll be okay, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, you know, of course, when I uh, finally accepted, he was thrilled. And, you know, then the hardest thing is, you know, you know, for a little while before anybody else knows. Right. It was top. It was probably the best kept secret. <laughs> None of us knew until the official announcement. <laughs> well, it was cute because I think, you know, as Joe was trying to um, introduce me, you know, we'd gone over some of my history and stuff. And it was so funny. I was like, within like the first two lines, I'm like, I think everybody now knows who it is. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yes. The born in Iowa kid. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um so typically at this point in our podcast interview we often pick the brains of uh leaders uh, and talk about where they think the future of ct surgery is going to go in, in the years ahead we of course now have the added advantage of you're also got the um the mantle or the leadership hat of being the leader of the largest uh, cardiothoracic surgical organization in the years ahead. Yeah, what, what thoughts are going through your mind? I, I, I'm not going to put you on the spot right now and give us the title of your presidential speech, by the way. <laughs> I'm just thinking, you know, what, 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 where do you think are the advantages that CT surgery have? Where are still some of the blind spots or areas of opportunities that we need to overcome or, or improve upon uh, in the years ahead? Well, I think, you know, one of the advantages is that we're not going away in terms of, I mean, <laughs> you know, heart disease, congenital heart disease, thoracic cancers, you know, all of these are number one or top on the list of causes of major morbidity and mortality for people around the world. And there's a commitment 
to continue to provide outstanding care for patients. So, you know, from a relevant standpoint, we're there. Um, but really, I think the society's position is really being the voice for our profession, the voice for our patients. How do we become better? How are we better advocates for ourselves? How are we better advocates for our patients? Um, I think we still have a lot of room to grow. Be being more um, dynamic, being more flexible. You look at, um, for example, myself, when I first had my kids, I worked part-time. I remember people saying like, so how does a part-time cardiac surgeon work? I'm like, you know what? It worked because I had great colleagues and peers. And I think we are seeing an increasing, the, the next generations coming along highly value their personal lives, their outside hobbies, families, and career. And I think what we see is when there are individuals who are highly successful, are very happy in all those different areas, they are much more effective. They're gonna be better physicians, better leaders, better contributors to the society. And so I think, you know, seeing people with families in leadership positions, seeing women, seeing underrepresented minority groups at the table, I think all that is just gonna increase the richness of our organization because with diversity, all groups achieve a higher level. So I think there's, you know, when you look at the picture wall, so to speak, of past presidents, it's a pretty uniform looking picture. <laughs> and, you know, I think this is really exciting because although, I mean, tremendous giants who have set so many major milestones within cardiothoracic surgery. But just think when you see that a more diverse picture going forward, how much more greatness we're going to achieve. It's just exciting. Wow. Um, in the few moments that we have left, yeah. you've had an incredibly unique journey. Um, there's nobody like you, which is great, which is the great part of our, our field that there's so, uh, as well as the series that we're trying to highlight that the path to excellence and achievement and leadership and being a visionary or leading light in the world of CT surgery, it's just not carbon copies of each other. There are different pathways. You, reflecting on your unique journey, uh, you know, any thoughts? I, I, think, I think my path probably, or my learning point from my journey is just being true to yourself. And you know that's what I've done all along is I've, I've listened to others. I've followed what felt right. I've been committed to things that were important to me. You know, have, having a family was tremendously important to me and was a top priority and was a huge challenge. Um, but one of the greatest blessings that I have, but I think it's being true to yourself, but also when I reflect on my career and how I got here, was again, because of those tremendous mentors and sponsors I had, those people who asked me the question of, what do you really wanna do when you grow up? What, if you could do anything in the world, what would you wanna do? Like the simplest question, but was pivotal in my career. Um, the, you know, when Ed Beauvais and Rick Oye would say, hey, I can't moderate that session. How about you go moderate it? They could moderate that session. They wanted to give me an opportunity to be up at the podium. And you know, that's what set me on this path. 
having people that gave me opportunities and then reflecting back on how can I give other people the same opportunities or even more opportunities. Because all you have to do is give people a chance to shine. And once you give them a chance, it's easy from there. Beautiful uh, in conclusion to our interview. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Romano, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for joining us on the, today's episode of Same Surgeon, Different Life. Thanks so much, Jenna. Thank you so much, Tom. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.